Bill Browder was in London, watching helplessly. It was late 2008. His friend and lawyer, 37-year-old Sergei Magnitsky, had been arrested and thrown into Moscow's Butyrka prison. I mean, I can't even describe how upsetting it is to have somebody who works for you taken hostage because there's not a moment that you can feel happiness or relaxation or anything because you just know that, well, you know, you're, you're in your own bed, he's sleeping on a, like a stone cot. While you're taking a shower, he's not allowed to shower. You know, while you're sitting in a warm room, he's sitting in a room nearly freezing to death. This is Browder telling the story to the independent media company London Real. Up until 2005, Bill Browder had been a hedge fund manager who worked in Moscow and was among the largest private investors in all of Russia. But then his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, had found evidence implicating Russian officials in massive corruption and also implicated them in having connections with the Russian mafia. Magnitsky was jailed, held for more than 350 days without trial, and killed. Cause of death? Blunt trauma to the head. When he died, when they killed him, I was, it was so far outside of my own expectations of the worst-case scenario, I, I, I couldn't even process it. It was just so horrible. Well, I, um, I processed it the only way I knew how, which was to say, which was to, to take responsibility to go after the people that killed him. Bill Browder pushed hard. He has constantly advocated for sanctions against Russia. And in 2012, he was instrumental in Congress's passing of the Magnitsky Act, which bars Russian human rights abusers from entering the United States. Browder is also one of Russian President Vladimir Putin's most forceful critics. He is truly one of the most um, cynical, aggressive, evil uh, dictators on the planet. Um, he's a killer. And as a result of being his enemy and as a result of his homicidal tendencies, I've had to adjust my life very profoundly. I'm still here, which is a good thing. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. As Bill Browder says, as a result of his constant criticism of Vladimir Putin, he has had to protect every aspect of his life. His physical safety, his financial safety, even his digital safety. Browder told us he's always on guard against any way, in real life or online, that Putin might get to him. But he's also still criticizing the Russian regime. And most recently, he's been vocally supporting sanctions against Russia for its attack on Ukraine. So just a few weeks ago, Browder told us he wasn't surprised at all to get an email that seemed to come from former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, asking if Browder would schedule a call to talk about sanctions. And so that seemed like a perfectly appropriate approach. The, um, the Ukrainians are very interested in sanctions against Russia. And so I asked one of my um, team members to um, check it out, make sure it's legit, and then schedule it. I guess in the rush of things that were going on that week, this person didn't actually do anything other than call the number on the email. The person seemed very pleasant and reasonable. The call was scheduled. And I joined the call a little bit late. I, I'm, I'm on like 10 minutes after it started because of some transportation issues. And apparently before I joined, there was a, an individual who showed up on the screen saying, I'm the simultaneous translator. I'm going to be translating for former President Poroshenko. 
and there's an image of of Petro Poroshenko as as I know him to look like, and he starts talking. It was odd because everybody else, as they were talking, you could see them talking, and he was talking, and there was this weird delay, which I attributed to the simultaneous translation. It was as if you're watching a some kind of a, type of foreign film that was dubbed, and so you know the, the person's you're watching their lips move is not not it's not correspondent with the the words coming out of the mouth. Then it started getting a little odd. The Ukrainians, of course, are you know under fire, under attack by the Russians, and this fellow who portrayed himself as Petro Poroshenko started to ask the question: Don't you think it would be better if we released some of the Russian oligarchs from sanctions if they were to give us a little bit of money? And it just seemed completely odd. And I, I gave the answer which I would give in any public setting, um, and I said, no, I think it's the oligarch should be punished to the full extent of the sanctions. And and then he did something even stranger, which is he said, well, what, what do others think on this call? And, and that's a very unusual thing. If it's sort of principle to principle, people don't usually ask the principal's aides what they think of the situation. But my, my colleagues then chimed in and said various things. And I, I didn't think that it wasn't Poroshenko. I just thought, what a, what an unimpressive guy, all these crazy and, and unhelpful ideas he's coming up with. No wonder he's no longer president. That was my first um, reaction. And then it got really weird. And as the call was coming to an end, he said, I'd like to play the Ukrainian national anthem. And will you please put your hands on your heart? <laughs> so, and, and again, we weren't convinced it wasn't Petro Poroshenko. And so we all put our hands on our heart listening to the Ukrainian national anthem. I had some reaction that, that maybe this wasn't for real, but but there he was, you know, this Petro Poroshenko guy. <laughs> then the final moment uh, that I knew that that we that this was a, a trick was when he put on some rap song and and in Ukrainian that I don't know what it said and and asked us to continue putting our hands on our hearts. And that, at that point, it was obvious that we had been tricked into some kind of deep fake. Well, this was done by the Russians. Why would the Russians do this? Well, the Russians have been trying to discredit me for a long time uh, in every different possible way. And I think what they were hoping to do is to get me in some type of setting where I would say something differently than I had said publicly. I've been under attack, um, under death threat, under kidnapping threat by the Russians um, since the Magnitsky Act was was passed in 2012. And so the fact that they've actually penetrated my defenses is very worrying. The fact that that we didn't pick it up is extremely worrying. And thank, thankfully, I mean, in a certain way, this is a very cheap lesson because nobody was hurt, um, nobody was killed, nobody was kidnapped. You know, uh, just we all just looked a little stupid. And I'm glad they, they taught me this lesson because since then we've um, dramatically heightened our vigilance and our security. Um, maybe we've just gotten too relaxed, but we aren't anymore. It's Bill Browder, a prominent critic of the Russian government. Now, Browder also told us that he and his staff finally confirmed that the call was indeed a deep fake when they took a much closer look at the email that that uh, message supposedly from Poroshenko, where it came from. Turns out they traced the email back to a domain in Russia that had only recently been created. So Browder's experience raises the question once again about 
What happens when deepfakes move from the realm of saying a thing that a celebrity never said and into the realm of governments using deepfakes against each other? Well, that's what we're talking about today. And joining us now is Hani Farid. He's a professor at the University of California, Berkeley School of Information and Electrical Engineering, and he specializes in digital forensics, generative AI, and deep fakes. Professor Farid, welcome to you. Good to be with you again, Magna. So how um, emblematic would you say Bill Browder's story is of the kinds of uses that we might see of deep fakes in, national, in the national security sphere? Yeah, first, that's a chilling story. Um, I'm also not surprised to hear it. Uh, we have been seeing over the last five years the deepfake generative AI technology continue to improve in quality and the democratization of the technology. That is, it's not just state-sponsored actors, but it's anybody. And what's particularly chilling about this example is it's only fairly recently that we've seen live deepfakes. I mean, it's one thing to go to YouTube or TikTok and say, okay, somebody has offline created a deepfake, but this is happening in real time now over a video call. And I think this is yet another uh, problematic world we are entering where we can't believe what we read and see uh, online. We can't believe the Zoom calls. We can't believe the phone calls. And the question you gotta ask yourself is, how do we walk, how do we get through the world? <laughs> how do we get through the day? And I think that is a really concerning aspect of deep fakes is now everything is suspect. You, you gotta know that on every call Bill Browder gets on, there's gonna be this nagging suspicion of like, is this happening again? And that's a, that's a tough world to enter into. Okay, wow. So um, can you just tell me a little bit more about what's allowed in the past couple of years for uh, the deep fakes to get so much better, so much more convincing? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things going on with the deep fakes uh, technology. So first of all, there's just a lot of people out there developing really powerful algorithms that um, are faster and create higher quality. So there's just, there's just a big body of literature that is both academic and in the private sector. Uh, we have more and more data. Um, there's more and more images and videos of people that you want to create deep fakes of. And of course, we have more and more computing power. Uh, computing power is becoming more ubiquitous and easier to get a hold of. And so it's the natural evolution of almost every technology that we have seen over the last two or three decades. The technology gets better, it gets faster, and it gets cheaper, and it gets more ubiquitous. And the deep fakes is following that same basic trend. Mm, okay. And so, um, I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot about deep fakes in sort of the, the commercial and social media sphere, social media yeah. being the, the way that these things go viral, of course. Yeah. But our focus today is on national security. So do we already have evidence beyond, you know, Browder's one experience that governments um, are perhaps using deep fakes as a means to undermine other countries in various ways? This is not the first example that we have seen the Russians using deep fakes. We saw one in the early days of the invasion of Ukraine where they had created a deep fake of President Zelensky um, saying, we surrender, put down your weapons. Uh, the mayor of Madrid, uh, Vienna and Berlin each separately had a Zoom call very much like Bill Browder's where they thought they were talking to the mayor of Kiev and in fact it was deep fakes. 
Um, our very own ha- uh, chairman of the Fed was on a phone call a few weeks ago with who he thought was President Zelensky, and it was not. It was a deep fake. So we are seeing this weaponization impacting uh, global leaders around the world. Well, Professor Fareed, you're giving us a lot to talk about. We'll pick it up in just a minute when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today, Professor Hani Farid joins us. He's at the University of California, Berkeley School of Information and Electrical Engineering. He's a specialist in digital forensics, generative AI, and deep fakes. And today we're talking about the use and threat of deep fakes when governments deploy them against each other. So the potential national security threats of deep fakes. And Professor Farid, just before the break, you had talked about... Um, an example of uh, of Ukrainian um, President uh, Vladimir Zelensky's voice being deep faked, and I want to actually just walk folks more specifically through that example. Um, so this happened back in March of 2022. And uh, it was when it was apparently um, a video of Zelensky telling his soldiers to lay down their arms and surrender to Russia. Um, the deepfake video in total is about a minute long, and it circulated on social media uh, quite extensively. We're going to play the deepfake in just a second. But first, I wanted people to once again hear Vladimir Zelensky's real voice. Now, we can confirm this is really him because it was Zelensky. This, you're about to hear Zelensky's speech, a moment from his speech, when he stood before a joint session of the United States Congress in December of 2022. So here's what he sounds like, and this is Zelensky's real voice. Dear Americans, in all states, cities, and communities, all those who value freedom and justice, who cherish it as strongly as we Ukrainians, in all our cities, in each and every family, I hope my words of respect and gratitude resonate in each American heart. So once again, that's Volodymyr Zelensky uh, in December of 2022 when he spoke before the United States Congress. Okay, so here's a really short clip of the deep fake video of Zelensky that uh, appeared earlier in the year. It's in Ukrainian, so it's going to sound uh, different from from Zelensky speaking in English. But here's what that uh, deep fake sounded like. 
і українці. Шановні захисники, бути президентом. Okay, so we just wanted to play only a few seconds of that. Professor Farid, um, does the technology exist right now to quickly be able to tell the difference? Yeah, that's the right question to ask. First, let me mention that uh, there are two ways of creating that fake, three ways of creating fake audio. One is you just have an impersonator, somebody who's just good at impersonating um, them. Two is that you clone the voice from just a few minutes of audio. So I can, for example, upload a few minutes of audio of you, Magna, um, and I can clone your voice and then I can type and then it will synthesize an audio of you saying what I want you to say. So let's let's consider that an offline process. And there's also a real-time voice cloning where as I'm speaking, with about a half a second delay, it will be converted into another person's voice, your voice, uh, President Zelensky's voice, who's ever. And so those are the three threat vectors. And now the question you want to ask is, well, can we detect it? <laughs> and the answer is yes, um, now. But six months from now, who knows? Hmm. This is very much an adversarial game. The technology is constantly changing. And so we build defenses. That's what we do here in my lab at UC Berkeley. And usually we get six to 12 months of defense and then a new technology comes out and we have to build another defense and then another defense. And it's very much that cat and mouse game in an arms race. And it's very difficult because my starter gun goes off after my adversary has already released their uh, offensive weapon. And so I'm always playing catch up by design. So it's a very hard task. But here's what's also hard is it's a big internet. There are billions of uploads a day and we can't analyze every single piece of content. I can't be on a private call between Bill Browder and whomever he's speaking with. So even the defenses are not enough. They're necessary, but they're not enough to solve the problem in its entirety. Mm, okay. So, you know, we're a little bit later in the show. I'm going to return to this um, of what yeah. can we do question because, mm. so as you noted, so much has changed in the past few years and so much will change even in the next six months that uh, yeah. the, the cat and mouse game is almost infinite here. But I wanted yeah. to also take a moment to uh, understand with gl- greater clarity the kinds of uses, right? We've yeah. uh, for for these deep fakes when it comes to national security, the the wartime use is one of them, obviously. Yeah. But we've yeah. seen other examples. Um, for example, I believe there was a uh, an image or a video uh, that was faked of the Pentagon recently that actually mm-hmm. had an effect on uh, yeah. on the stock market. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, good. So this was just a couple of weeks ago. There was a, a, a not very good fake image purportedly showing the Pentagon being bombed. And it was absolutely AI generated. Um, there was the telltale signs uh, that we could see. That image was posted on Twitter on a verified account. So the blue check mark. Thank you, Elon Musk. And it was it went viral. It was retweeted by, uh, wait for it, uh, RT, the Russian propaganda machine of the government. And the stock market dropped in a period of two minutes, half a trillion dollars. That's insane. <laughs> now, and you can, you can, we can directly link it back to that that yeah. image. Yeah, yeah. The TikTok. You, so you can you can look at the timing of what how the image went up. The reaction to the market, it plummeted. The image was debunked and the market rebounded. And the thing that's fascinating about it, it was not a particularly good uh, deep fake. And, and it was a, a confluence of things. It was the fact that it was a verified account that looked like Bloomberg News, that it was retweeted by a number of different outlets. Um, and people move fast on social media. 
And so that's the other aspect of this is before anybody thought about this problem, there were there there was the the sell off. Now look, everything rebounded, it was fine, but did somebody make billions of dollars in that dip? We don't know. But you know somebody's looking at that reaction thinking, well, if one image can drop the market, surely another one can. So is somebody going to try to manipulate our markets using simple fake images? Probably. Um, and that's, I think, something that we need to start think, taking very seriously. Well, so in this example, though, isn't part of the problem uh, not just on the mm-hmm. side of the proliferation of the, the deep fake, but also, I mean, if the markets respond so quickly, part of that must be because of all the automated trading that goes on. It's uh, the, the I, system I, itself I, has some weaknesses? This is a fascinating question because I don't think we've done the full postmortem, but there is a scenario here where a generative AI image um, – was caused AI predictive algorithms (laughs) to respond to the market. And what a weird world we're living in now where AI is manipulating AI. But yes, I think that's almost certainly there was some role of automated uh, trading here that panicked when they saw what they thought was breaking news on Twitter about a bombing at the Pentagon. Okay. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because I, again, in uh, in a few minutes, I want to explore deeply about how it's not just the deep fake itself. It's the the environments that those deep fakes are deployed into that also have to be strengthened um, when it comes to economic and national security. So uh, hang on here for just a second, Professor Farid, because I want to walk through a couple more examples of how other experts see the threat to national security Mm. when it comes to synthetic media or deep fakes. So we have a moment here from a June 2019 House Intelligence Committee hearing on national security challenges of deep fakes. And by the way, your research was actually quoted quite extensively uh, at this hearing. But we're about to hear Clint Watts from the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University. He described to the House committee some of the national security threats he sees presented by manipulated media. Deep fake proliferation presents two clear dangers. Over the long term, deliberate development of false synthetic media will target U.S. officials, institutions, and democratic processes with an enduring goal of subverting democracy, demoralizing the American t- and dis- demoralizing the American constituency. U.S. diplomats and military personnel deployed overseas will be prime targets for deepfake disinformation conspiracies planted by adversaries. Three examples would be mobilization at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, the consulate in Benghazi, and rumors of protests at Interlick Air Base, had they been accompanied with uh, fake audio or video content, could have been far more damaging in terms of that. So Clint Watts there describing how deep fakes could have an impact uh, politically on national security internally to the United States and also have an impact on U.S. interests abroad. Well, joining us now is Jamil Jaffer. He's founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and also a venture partner with Paladin Capital Group, which invests in dual-use national security technologies. Jamil Jaffer, welcome to you. Thanks for having me, Magna. Okay. So I just want to get a quick sort of temperature check from you. How concerned are you about the use of deep fakes or synthetic media, as they're more broadly called, as a potential threat to U.S. national security? Well, look, I think we should all be uh, concerned, Magna. I think, you know, Professor Farid has laid out some some great examples of of where this can go wrong, um, how these tools can be utilized by nation states and by uh, a broader audience of folks to generate, um, 
you know, concerns, uh, generate popular, uh, you know, generate an economic change in the marketplace, um, and generate a political response. Uh, you know, we know about what happened in 2016 uh, with the efforts by the Russians to uh, to manipulate um, our elections, um, and we now know that nation states uh, are aware of and capable of using. Uh, these technologies, uh, as they get faster and better and more more efficient, um, uh, to to engage in things that could potentially affect uh, U.S. and allied national security. Mm. You know, it seems to me though that if if we take sort of a thirty thousand view, thirty thousand foot view look here, uh, excuse me, thirty thousand foot view of the situation, that deepfakes are just the latest. Y- means of what has always been with us when it comes to nations battling each other, that using information to undermine other countries. So what would you think makes uh, synthetic media different from what uh, nations used to do to each other before? No, I think you're exactly right, Magna. It's, um, you know, we've had information operations, um, you know, going back thousands of years uh, in wartime uh, to, you know, to affect adversaries' perceptions of our capabilities uh, or, 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 or the other side of it. And um, so you're exactly right. What I think is important here about this new trend, uh, which Professor Farid has also identified, is the rapidity, the speed, the efficiency, the ability to deliver messaging in real time um, as events are happening and to shape uh, people's perception of what's going on. You know, we heard about what happened with that call um, uh, that Bill Browder had. Um, we're in the moment, uh, as Professor Freed laid out. Uh, you can change what people are perceiving. Is this, in fact, uh, Pedro Poroshenko um, on the other side of this conversation, right? Um, is uh, is President Zelensky saying, put down our weapons? Is uh, the President of the United States going to order an attack on another nation? You know, there was a video up uh, that, that was generated um, uh, by a research institution uh, at, um, at Northwestern University of a terrorist, uh, or a, a, actually a dead terrorist, Mohammed al-Adani, um, saying something that Bashar Assad said. Um, and so, you know, and these are fairly, fairly early days of this technology. And so uh, certainly being able to determine whether something is in fact, a person is in fact who they say they are, uh, whether in fact a video is what it purports to be, um, and how you can tell when things aren't that are going to be critical uh, going forward, not just in the political arena, but in the business arena for markets and the like. Yeah. So Professor Fareed, let me go back to you um, for a moment. Pick up on what uh, Jamil Jaffer is saying. And let's let's just focus for a second on how the deep fakes uh, could potentially undermine not just um, national security vis-a-vis uh, U.S. officials, but national security in terms of our belief, meaning Americans' belief in you know in their own democracy. So that's the the demoralization yeah. question uh, that Clint Watts yeah. in that in that clip I had played earlier had mentioned. Yeah, what's amazing about Clint's comments back in 2019, is four years ago, is he was quite prescient. Um, I think he got it just about right. And I think there's a number of things that we are starting to see. So one is, as, as, as Jamil was just saying, the technology is getting better and better, more ubiquitous, people are starting to use it. And what that means is that we've eroded trust, that when you see a video of President Biden, um, saying something, there's this, you know, is this real? Is it not real? And the question you got to ask yourself is, how do we have a democracy? How do we have a society when 
people are fundamentally skeptical about everything they read, see, and hear online. What happens, for example, when there really is an audio recording of a politician saying something illegal or offensive? They have plausible deniability. They can deny reality at this point. Reality starts to become very weird just when things can be synthesized and manipulated. And suddenly it's getting very difficult to even reason about basic facts of what's going on in the world from police violence, human rights violations, uh, elections. Um, everything that happens in the world is suddenly, well, are we sure about that? And I worry about our very democracy uh, because as you were saying, we've already seen the impact of mis- and disinformation lead to things like the January 6th insurrection, lead to spectacular conspiracy theories that have disrupted our response to COVID. And what happens when you inject deep fake videos and audio into that already existing ecosystem, that should be of real concern to us as a society. Yeah, I think I'm seeing some experts call it the liar's dividend, right? Yes. Um, so so Jamil Jaffer, picking, picking it up from there, uh, let's look uh, internationally. Could you pl- imagine a scenario in which deep fakes are used to, let's say, mislead U.S. military personnel um, abroad? Because, of course, you know, our U.S. soldiers and airmen and Marines are all they're all connected to the Internet as well in certain ways. Is, is that a potential threat? It, well, certainly a possibility, you know, as, as Hani lays out exactly right, um, you know, this all comes at a time when we were already seeing an erosion uh, in, in not just in America, but around the world um, in reliance on the rule of law, reliance on rule of law institutions, right? Here in the United States, people question our elections. We question uh, whether law enforcement is doing uh, the right thing, whether what we're seeing um, on television um, or what the president or other people are saying is real news or fake news. Are they facts? Are they alternative facts? So this is all coming at a time when our, our entire society is questioning these 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 uh, these topics and and you know things that are in public in in the public debate. And you add on to that, you know, what are our perceptions of us overseas? What are our military members thinking? Now, one would assume, right, that we have ways of verifying um, that messages being passed under, through official channels are legitimate. You know, everyone knows the scene uh, from, uh, from um, you know, a nuclear launch codes being, being passed on where you, you break open the package and you verify the, the numbers and there's multiple people verifying it, right? So there are ways, uh, you know, that we have through encryption and the like to verify whether, whether messages are legitimate. The problem is, that it's all taking place in the context of a political environment where there's already been a decay in truth and a decay in facts. And, you know, people are inclined to think uh, that what they're seeing might not be, that that their own eyes are lying to them. Um, and that's what creates the possibility for this liar's dividend that Bobby Chesney um, and Danielle Citron have come up with this idea of, of people saying even something that's true isn't true, right? President Trump says, I didn't say that. Or, or you know, and even though there's a video of him saying that, well, I didn't, I didn't say that. That's a deep fake, right? Okay. Well, there's so much more to talk about because when we come back, I want to discuss a little bit about not just what the threats are to U.S. national security, but some evidence that, of course, the U.S. sees this as a tool, too, about synthetic media and how it might use it in its own interests in battling or undermining confidence in other nations. So we'll talk about that when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? 
I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about deep fakes and synthetic media more broadly and the threat it can pose to national security. I'm joined today by Hani Farid. He's professor at the University of California, Berkeley's Schools of Information and Electrical Engineering and a specialist in digital forensics, forensics, generative AI and deep fakes. Jamil Jaffer is also with us. He's founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. So, Jamil, I mean, how much do we know about whether the United States is interested or even currently deploying these same tools uh, that we're we're talking about in terms of, like, are they're a threat to the U.S., but something that's that potentially effective and hard to combat must be a powerful tool for the U.S. to use as well. Well, you know, certainly uh, the United States, like every other nation state, has engaged in information operations and psychological operations historically as part of uh, our military um, uh, operations, you know, in war and in, in battle and, and even, you know, in the lead up to a conflict. We might do it through covert action or the like. And so this is not uh, an, an area that's unknown to the United States. In fact, uh, you know, some would argue that the United States, Russia, China are, are the best at these type of information and psychological operations. And so the question becomes, you know, has the U.S. looked at this capability? And there's no doubt uh, that our special operations forces, our intelligence agencies are actively exploring these capabilities. They're also actively exploring uh, defenses of these technologies. Mm -hmm. We know that DARPA has programs on semantic forensics and the like to identify, you know, the kind of tools. And we've seen, you know, American companies partner uh, with, uh, with the government institutions to help identify how do we figure out what a deep fake is and the like. And the private sector is investing in the space. You know, at, at Paladin Capital, we're spending time looking at how do you ensure that algorithms are strong and well and defensible. How do you identify these capabilities? And so, you know, both in the private and public marketplace, uh, we're looking both at the, the people are looking both at the offensive capability, but also how to defend against it. And by the way, it's worth noting. AI, and, 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 and Hani can talk about this actively, AI can both uh, create these capabilities and also help defend against it. Mm. Well, uh, you mentioned special operations, Jamil, and just to put a finer point on it, um, reporting from The Intercept a little earlier this year, back in, in March, found that U.S. Special Operations Command, in fact, is openly signaling its interest in um, developing synthetic media as a tool for the U.S. military. There's a document that uh, The Intercept um, has taken a look at and actually uh, published now, a SOCOM document uh, that signals uh, SOCOM's desire to use 
deep fakes. And specifically, uh, the, the document says that they're looking for next generation capability to do things like take over the Internet of Things and to um, deal with the digital space, social media analysis, deceptive technologies. So, I mean, it's, it's out there in terms of um, the, the U.S.'s desire to use these, these technologies. Honey, did you have a, a response to that? Yeah, I can't speak to the offensive part, but I think Jamil is absolutely right that uh, it would be it would defy credibility that the U.S. is not at least looking at this. I can certainly speak to the defensive part because it is absolutely true that now for many years, uh, the U.S. government through DARPA and through other funding agencies have been funding research, the kind of research we do here and, and, and many other places in the world to try to build defenses. And Jamil is right, too, is that it's fascinating to see this essentially the same basic tools being used for offense and defense. And that's actually why this this task is so hard is because many times the defensive tool can be used against you. If you if you are in the business of playing offense, you want to be in the business of also playing defense because that's the only way to know whether your techniques are going to work or not. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So um, I just wanted to add the specific language from from SOCOM's document that, about what mm-hmm. they're trying to um, learn and gather and contract out. They want to, quote, uh, improved means of carrying out influence operations, digital deception, communication disruption, and disinformation campaigns at the tactical edge and operational levels. Now... To circle back to what both of you just said about um, the same tools are needed for um, offensive capabilities and defensive capabilities when it comes to synthetic media, we did actually reach out to folks um, at DARPA who are currently uh, at work on this. And the reason why we did it is because back in 2019, at that same congressional hearing that I had mentioned earlier, uh, we remembered hearing um, the founder of the Media Forensics Research Project, or also known as Metaphor, which is at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And the head of that program used to be a gentleman named David Dorman. And here's what he said to Congress in 2019. When the Metaphor program was conceived at DARPA, one thing that kept me up at night was the concern that someday our adversaries would be able to create entire events with minimal effort. These events might include images of scenes from different angles, video content that appears from different devices, and text that's delivered through various media providing an overwhelming amount of evidence that an event has occurred, and this could lead to social unrest or retaliation before it gets countered. If the past five years are any indication, that someday is not very far in the future. So that's David Dorman almost exactly four years ago speaking to Congress about DARPA's metaphor program. So we recently spoke to the current head of that program, Will Corvey. DARPA has actually replaced replaced metaphor with another project called Semantic Forensics, which both of you have mentioned. And Will Corvey told us that a lot has changed since that 2019 congressional hearing, namely the explosion of generative AI. We've gone from a media landscape where um, it was a bit of an outlier, right, to find a piece of created or synthesized media um, to now where we would expect actually um, maybe very soon the bulk of uh, internet media to at least have been retouched um, by one of these computational models. And so it really becomes much more of a characterization problem for us now um, as opposed to uh, merely um, a detection problem or primarily a detection problem. Corby also told us that means DARPA has to speed up how quickly deepfakes can be detected to get to a place 
where the technology can pick apart a piece of synthetic media to see how it was created. And, he, and they say that because, of course, not all deep fakes are meant to be malicious. You may have seen like the image of a squirrel riding a skateboard in Central Park. But imagine then that I, I did some Photoshop editing on top of it, right? That might now be the state of the art for sort of computer-aided art. So moving forward as a culture of, of makers online, that might be a signature of something that we would want to set aside as a completely benign purpose of a couple different computational techniques. Unfortunately, though, those very same computational techniques could be utilized for propaganda purposes, right? And so differentiating between those kinds of stacks of analytics is, is another part of the scaling. Corby also told us that the technology Semaphore is working on could be used to flag potentially harmful deepfakes for moderators to review, human moderators. But the actual policy implementation would be up to the social media companies or to government regulators. Good news, though, Corby says Semaphore has been able to use older generative AI models to train AI to detect the things made by those same models. So a lot of models um, that are the best performing models uh, at this moment have a predecessor model that is related in the way that it was implemented. It has a similar model architecture. And so it turns out the computer systems that are tooled for the detection of these kinds of models can use those architectural similarities in addition to human expertise in order to achieve really good detection accuracies, even on unseen models. And so we had a particular collaboration with NVIDIA within the program where we were able to show that for face generation models, for instance, Instance. It works if you if you train it on a predecessor model and then deploy it on, on sort of the current model. And in that case, we were able to release a detection model at the same time that NVIDIA released their new face generation model. So basically, it would be much less likely that someone could use that particular model um, for a nefarious purpose. That's Will Corvey, head of the Semantic Forensics Project at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Now, Professor Fareed, um, what I'm still curious about regarding the tools used to to detect um, deepfakes in the national security realm is that several years ago, the concern was, yes, we can do it, but there was a speed and scaling problem in terms of could we analyze everything that could potentially be a deep fake. Now, earlier in the hour, I thought I heard you say that that scaling problem is still real. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I think the way I think about these defenses that we've just been talking about and that Will very nicely described is that they are necessary but not sufficient. We need the tools to detect manipulated media, but we also need regulation to force companies like Twitter, like Facebook, like TikTok to do better on moderating content. We need more education. We need people to understand what these threats are and how to reason about a very complex and fast moving world. And we need people to slow down on the internet, please. Part of the problem is that people are moving so fast on the internet, resharing, retweeting, without really thinking about the implications of what they're doing. So I think there are many aspects of what we need to do to start to regain some trust. And I'll make a little pitch also that there is some other technology that is being developed called the Content Authentication uh, Authenticity Initiative, where uh, synthetic media will be signed and watermarked at the point of creation. And so one way to think about this problem is if you wait until something is in the wild, it's very hard to rein it back in. But if you are at the point of creation, either a real image 
or a synthetic image, you can sign and watermark and fingerprint that content so that when it does go into the wild, it can be very quickly detected. And there's some very nice technology coming out that I think is going to help us regain some trust, uh, but it's still part of a larger ecosystem that we need. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, Jamil Jaffer, the other issue that seems to continue to uh, to dog folks who are worried about democratic and national security is the the velocity part right like the 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 deep fakes wouldn't be as effective in changing many minds if they didn't get to as many minds as quickly as they did so can they be slowed down by the social media companies i have to say i possess a great deal of pessimism about this because we've already seen unwillingness from the major social media companies in the recent past to even slow down the velocity of, you know, known uh, misinformation and disinformation, let alone harder to detect deep fakes. So should we be putting more pressure on the platforms by which these synthetic media proliferate to, um, to try and cut the velocity of them? Well, I think there's no doubt, uh, Magna, that we're going to see some amount of regulatory moves by the government. You've already heard discussion about it on Capitol Hill. Uh, you've got uh, Europe uh, trying to make some moves in this space. Uh, they've got the AI Act and the like. They've got other forms of regulation uh, that they've been considering with respect to some of the larger social media companies. Uh, a lot of it, frankly, wrong-headed and, and, and not particularly sophisticated. Um, but there is, uh, there is uh, some amount of activity going on in governments that we will see going forward. The question becomes, where's that balance, right? You you definitely are going to need some amount of government in, government action and regulation uh, in this space, but you're also going to you also do not want to de-incentivize innovation. You want to ensure that people are moving forward and are, are using this technology in the in the long run, in the longer scheme of things. Magna, our artificial intelligence and machine learning of the kind that that Hani lo- spends a lot of time looking at. This is going to be transformative for our society and 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 create huge uh, benefits for society. There are certainly downsides. And there is a need for the government to get engaged. The question is at what level, how often, where. Um, When it comes to this issue of misinformation and disinformation, the best I think the best methodology is is truthful content and and clarity about what is and what is not true. And things like this authenticity initiative that, that Hani's talking about, that's where the real opportunity is. Because remember, the platforms and creators benefit when they're able to say, this is my content, this is legitimate content. It's to the benefit of the platforms and the creators when you're able to generate authenticity and demonstrate authenticity. Hmm. You know, I want to come back, circle back around to something uh, that, Professor Fareed, that you said a little earlier, and that is really we're moving towards um, a world in which it's not unreasonable to, in a sense, have a a little bit of constant doubt about almost everything that we're absorbing (laughs) digitally. Honestly, that I think that's going to mess with the human mind because we're not really evolved yeah. to the point of of not uh, being able to believe in our own realities. And then, and then, contemporaneous with that is kind of one of the neurological and emotional reasons uh, deep fakes work. And mm-hmm. uh, what got me thinking about that is um, I went back and watched a 2019 um, conference that happened at the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, and they were talking about deep fakes and national security. And at that conference, Boston University law professor Jessica Sibley said she thought the challenge in combating deep fakes wasn't exclusively technological. 
Deep fakes, many of them, their purpose is to denigrate and to dominate ideologically or physically. Um, so what about our sociality feeds those stories more than others? I think we, we, have, to, we have to think hard about, a, it's a cultural problem as much as it is a technological problem. Professor Farid, what do you think about that? Yeah. I think, I think Professor Sibley is right, by the way. There is very much a human component to this, which is that we respond to the most outrageous, salacial, salacious, hateful, and conspiratorial content online. The reason why social media keeps recommending this content to us is because we keep clicking on it. And Professor Sibley is right, is we need to look hard inside of ourselves and ask, what is wrong with us? Why do we keep enabling this type of content? You can absolutely blame the social media companies. You can blame YouTube for this week saying, we will no longer take down content that denies the election, the last national election here in the US. We should criticize them for that. But we should also ask, why is it that we keep migrating to this content over trusted content? over truthful content. And I don't have an answer for that, but I think that has to be part of the solution. Hmm. Well, we've got about 30 seconds left, and, and Jamil, I'm going to give you the last word here. I mean, what would you recommend uh, that the United States do to uh, prepare itself, for, again, in the national security realm for the near continuous threat now of synthetic media? Yeah, look, I think we need a way of getting uh, authorized and, and approved content, content that's authentic out more often, more regularly. Uh, we need to think about regulation. We need to think about it in the context of innovation and ensuring that we promote that innovation. And at the end of the day, we have to recognize and the American public has to recognize that our adversaries are using this technology. They're going to use it against us. We need to be skeptical of the content we see and ensure it's authentic when we rely upon it and pass it on to others. Well, that's Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Megna. And Hani Farid, professor at the University of California, Berkeley's Schools of Information and Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences. Professor Farid, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Great to be with you again, Megna. Thank you. I'm Megna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Mm-hmm.